Neurological and cognitive disorders, as well as mental illness, have long been misunderstood, misinterpreted, and feared. Throughout the years, the American Psychiatric Association has discovered and sometimes removed clinical diagnoses that end up in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. As a psychiatric epidemiology student and a future psychiatrist, I want to bring light to what these disorders truly are, how they correlate to violent crime, if at all, and ultimately educate and eradicate the stigma surrounding mental health care in this country. Each week, my co-host Dan and I will bring you a new disorder and provide you with all the information you need to better understand how the human brain works. This is Psyche Saturday. Ted Bundy, Dexter Morgan, Alex DeLarge, Buffalo Bill, Dennis Rader. What do all of these famous names from true crime and cinema have in common? They all killed people. Ding, ding, ding. That is correct. Do you know who all of them are? Murderers. Yes. <laughs> Well, you obviously know who Ted Bundy is. Yes. You obviously know who Dexter Morgan is. He was a fake man. Correct. Yes. He was fake, yes. You definitely know who Buffalo Bill was. Yup. Okay. Yup. Alex DeLarge? Not a clue. You do. Oh. He is from A Clockwork Orange. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. yes. You know him. Right. And Dennis Rader is BTK. Right. So you yes. know him by his... Yes. And his... I know, I know by his name. Oh, you do know his name, Dennis Rader. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I talk I'm, about him a lot, so. I'm married to a chick who's all into this crazy stuff. Yeah, you know, it happens. So, yes, they have all killed people. Right. Correct. For those of you who aren't familiar with the other podcast, I come into this completely blind. So you're going <laughs> to get this kind of reaction from me. Yeah. That's what I am. Yes. I'm... He's I'm, all of you. I'm all of you, exactly. <laughs> no, it's it's true. It's a, it's a concept in broadcasting. I'm the one you're. I'm the one you're supposed to identify with. I'm yeah. the everyman because I come right. into this representing you. Exactly. So we're not just dumb and unprofessional. This is on purpose. Correct. And if you listen to the other odd pa other podcast, see, I just did that. The other odd past, <laughs> uh, then you know that because you're used to me doing this stuff. Correct. For those of you who are not. Welcome. <laughs> Perfectly said. <laughs> and that's Dan, if you don't know. Yeah, I'm Dan. That's Dan. And I'm Sarah, if you didn't know. That's Sarah. Yes. Not only have they all killed people, but they have all been in some form diagnosed as or written to be sociopaths or psychopaths. But are they really? And if so, what truly makes them sociopathic or psychopathic? Today's Psyche Saturday will delve deep into the similarities between antisocial personality disorder, sociopathy, and psychopathy. Is there a difference? I don't know. <laughs> I'm lying, I do know. Um, I also want to throw out there first that psychopathy is not the same thing as psychosis. They are two completely, completely different, different things. things. And psychopathy and psychosis are also completely different than psychopathology. Yes. So the term psych means mind. So that's why so many of these things have that term in it, which is why we call this Psyche Saturday. Also, because I like the alliteration. Um, so don't confuse those three things. We will get into um, on another episode what psychosis actually is. 
And just know that psychopathology is literally just the study of the mind. So then Psychopathology you- is the study of bad things in the mind. Perfect. And there is a big difference between psychopathy and that chick you dated in college. She was just a whack job. Yes, and I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna talk about that. <laughs> exactly. We will get into the prevalence, the epidemiology. We're gonna get on into all of that stuff. This is the introductory episode to what we're going to be doing for all of these Psyche Saturdays, and they're all going to be about different disorders. So today's is antisocial personality disorder. So we're going to get into what the diagnostic criteria is, what the epidemiology is, and how it correlates to violent crime. Because essentially, we are, first and foremost, a true crime podcast. So we want you all to understand how these actually relate to violent criminals because a lot of these disorders are completely misunderstood and you'll actually see that with a lot of them what you think and what you perceive are completely different than what actually is reality um and that doesn't mean you're crazy <laughs> it just means that there's this there's a stigma surrounding mental health mental illness we all think that Every single person who has a mental illness is crazy and that they are probably a criminal. First, let us begin by explaining a little about the DSM-5 and the personality disorder clusters. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders was first published in... 1960? 52. Ah! Pretty close. (laughs) That was very close. You're good. (laughs) By the American Psychiatric Association. It is a manual utilized by many professionals, including physicians, health insurance companies, as well as those in the legal system. It by and large explains what is required for diagnoses of each psychiatric disorder, as well as statistics regarding each. Antisocial personality disorder, or ASPD, is designated as a cluster B personality disorder. There are three clusters within personality disorder diagnoses, which are A, B, and C. A is representative of personality disorders showing odd or eccentric behaviors such as schizoid personality disorder, schizotypal personality disorder, as well as paranoid personality disorder. Cluster B, where we find ASPD, is indicative of the dramatic or erratic behavioral patterns seen in histrionic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and narcissistic personality disorder. Who can we think of that has narcissistic personality disorder? Yeah, we do that sometimes. And then we have cluster C, which are the fearful and anxious behavior types found in obsessive compulsive personality disorder, not to be confused with obsessive compulsive disorder, Dependent personality disorder and avoidant personality disorder. And we will end up covering all of these at some point. So if you're questioning what they are, just hold tight. We will get to them in a future episode. So what is antisocial personality disorder and how is it different from sociopathy and psychopathy? According to the DSM-5, ASPD requires the following as diagnostic criteria. A, a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others occurring since age 15, as indicated by three or more of the following. One, failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors. Two, deceitfulness. Three, impulsivity or failure to plan ahead. Four, Irritability and aggressiveness. Five, reckless disregard for the safety of themselves or for others. Six, consistent irresponsibility. Or seven, lack of remorse. So with those, they need three or more. They don't need all of them. Some of them can have all of them, but they don't need all of them. B, they must be at least 18 years of age. C, there must be evidence of conduct disorder with onset prior to 15 years of age. 
And D, the occurrence of antisocial behavior, not exclusively during the course of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Now, this doesn't mean if you got into a fight once or you lied about your phone number at a bar to some creepy guy that you have antisocial personality disorder. Just like Dan mentioned, it's not necessarily the girl you dated in college, high school, elementary school. Right. These criteria must be ongoing. Also, it must be noted that the age requirement is 18 years. And this is because if someone is showing diagnostic signs of ASPD prior to the age of 18, he or she would be diagnosed with conduct disorder rather than ASPD. Age plays a huge role in whether ASPD can indeed be diagnosed. But conduct disorder is for another episode. And a little aside, Alex DeLarge, if he indeed did have antisocial personality disorder, he would actually technically have to be diagnosed with conduct disorder because in the book slash movie, he is under the age of 18 through pretty much the whole story. So he would actually not have ASPD, but he would still be considered a sociopath. So you're probably wondering how many people are diagnosed with ASPD? Well, a 12-month prevalence rate is between, what would you say? 15 and 40%. So you think that 15 to 40% of people who are undergoing observation and diagnosis for psychological disorders present with antisocial personality disorder? It's actually between 02 and 3.3%. That looks like I fucked up. <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand. I didn't understand the question. <laughs> I did not understand the question. This school sucks. I'm out. <laughs> ASPD is incredibly rare. It is estimated that about 1% of the general population has ASPD. It is an insanely pardon the pun, rare psychological disorder. But it is, of course, much higher when samples of males with alcohol use disorder or those from substance abuse clinics, prisons, or other forensic settings were examined. As we're going to see, it does have a significant correlation to crime. So many psychologists and psychiatrists equate ASPD with that of sociopathy and psychopathy because they all share the same pattern of persistent disregard for the rights of others. But how does sociopathy differ? Or does it at all? Yes. Chattanooga. <laughs> what is? 2 pi over r? Both sociopathy and psychopathy, according to many researchers, are likely extremes of antisocial personality disorder, with psychopathy likely making up approximately 3 to 15% of those with ASPD, according to a 2006 article by J.R. Ogloff, and sociopathy likely makes up approximately 30% of those diagnosed with ASPD. Though Dr. Johnson, whose article I'm about to discuss, says there is no real study supporting that latter claim. So it can be deduced that sociopaths do indeed have ASPD, though they have extreme remorselessness, extreme callousness, and extreme lack of emotion. I also do want to point out, though, with Dexter, and I'm about to give you a spoiler, so if you have not watched Dexter, sorry, oh, the show's been off been the air for like, uh, yeah, <laughs> deal with it. Dexter is interesting because his sociopathy was essentially a product of his environment and how he was raised, which is really interesting when we get a little bit deeper into how sociopathy develops. I don't know if I would necessarily consider a diagnosis for Dexter of antisocial personality disorder. But he did have sociopathy, as we as we saw 
with, you know, like when Rita died, he was kind of like, eh, my wife died, whatever. And that's why they thought that he killed her and, you know, all that stuff. Um, but it turns out when he meets the psychiatrist who his father um, used to help him, you know, produce Dexter Morgan, the 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 dark passenger part of Dexter, she kind of says to him, like, you didn't need to turn out this way. Like, we did this to you. So it's going to be really interesting. And I don't know if the writers necessarily, like, knew this stuff before writing that or if they just decided that they were going to write that in because that's how they wanted the story to go. But it's it's kind of an interesting play on what researchers claim actually creates a sociopath. Right. Most likely that was an afterthought. I would agree. <laughs> so with that said, psychopathy is just another extreme of ASPD with the same lack of emotion, remorselessness, and callousness as seen in those with sociopathy. But then if these seem to all be the same, why do they have different names? And why are sociopathy and psychopathy not diagnosable disorders found in the DSM? We will uncover this more when we discuss the hair psychopathy checklist. Sociopathy and psychopathy do indeed have many differences, and they can sometimes be a little difficult to understand because they are still extremely closely related. However, a 2019 article by Dr. Scott A. Johnson provides a handy-dandy chart to include what exactly these two don't have in common. So first and foremost, it is believed that psychopathy develops due to neurological abnormalities, while sociopathy can arise due to environmental factors such as abuse or lack of parenting. So the whole thing with Dexter is that he witnessed his mother's murder and was found in her pool of blood. And so it's kind of believed that that traumatic experience led him down this road and that they molded him into this sociopathic serial killer. Right. So, again, like you said, I agree. It probably was an afterthought. Because as a child and a teen, an adolescent, at least from what we saw on the show, from what I read in the books, he didn't really seem to exhibit conduct disorder behaviors. So I, I don't really see him progressing into actual antisocial personality disorder. I think they wrote him to be traumatized. Correct. And I think that they put the diagnosis on him after the initial draft of the script. Because they spoke to somebody and somebody said, hey, that sounds like ASPD. Rather than, I think they I think they wrote him to be traumatized. But I don't think that they specifically diagnosed him with ASPD. Uh -huh. I think that they were just saying he's a sociopath. Right. So it, it's interesting to me that sociopathy from many, many researchers' points of view, it comes from your environment. And that was how he was raised to become this sociopath i would tend to think and i mean i'm no expert of course that sociopathy is the kind of thing that you can't really get from your environment that has to be due to a congenital dysfunction of your brain specifically because it requires you to be apathetic and when i use the word apathetic i mean the definition of the word apathetic meaning you don't care you don't feel things you can't really i'm not saying that you can't have a traumatic event that's severe enough to cause you to kind of not feel but but it's not in the sense that with a sociopath you don't feel you're incapable of feeling even if you want to so i think that's the kind of thing that you can't really develop in a true in a true sense where potentially you could have a traumatic event especially earlier in your life which causes your brain to kind of shelter causes your psyche to shelter itself and not want to feel because it has felt something so bad and we've talked about that on um on blackbird um but i i don't think that you would diagnose that person as a sociopath i think that you would diagnose that person with ptsd 
hold that thought. Because what you're saying is more along the lines of what a psychopath is like, more so than what a sociopath is like. But they're both like. spectrums of anti of antisocial personality According disorder. to most researchers. Some right. researchers will actually say, though, that psychopathy is in its own realm, that it's not right. actually part of ASPD. Right, and I would tend to agree with that statement and under the assumption that if, if either of those two conditions can be acquired... I would think that psychopathy is the one that's more likely to be acquired and sociopathy is the one that's less likely to be acquired. So I'm going to give you more of this list that Dr. Johnson talks about in his article um, of what the differences are. And we'll see if you agree then okay. with what I'm with what I'm going to say. So right off the bat, like we just said, it seems that psychopathy is more of a neurological conditioning versus a an environmental conditioning which is where we get sociopathy dr johnson also posits that maybe sociopaths have true psychopathy but to a much lesser degree at first and that the adverse environment either feeds the deviant traits or reconfigures the brain chemistry to encourage the neurological abnormalities present in psychopathy to emerge one may play into the other. Dr. Johnson further explains that sociopaths tend to only bond with their primary groups, as in families or gangs, but with no other outside groups, and can experience remorse and guilt to said group, but again, not with others. However, psychopaths tend to not bond with anyone, though they can give the impression of bonding through manipulation and generally have minimal, if any, remorse or sense of conscience. Psychopaths may have stable employment, while sociopaths may have difficulty maintaining employment at all. And perhaps one of the biggest differences, at least in my opinion, is that psychopaths tend to be less impulsive and more plan-oriented. They can easily make excuses for their behavior when caught. But as we see in sociopaths, they tend to involve themselves in risk-taking behaviors, they act without care or concern for consequences, and they tend to be very impulsive. Okay, that's kind of the opposite of what I thought. I, I was always under the impression that, and what I really would like to do is see some case studies Yeah. on people who received a definitive diagnosis of sociopathy versus those who received a definitive diagnosis of psychopathy, because I would have tended to assume that those who were definitively diagnosed as psychopaths were the impulsive ones, and that psychopathy is an active driver of behavioral, of behavior, um, where a psychopath is one who is more likely to go out and do stuff versus where a sociopath, the condition of apathy isn't driving them it's it's specifically a lack of drive and thus they would be the far less impulsive uh individual as compared to a group of psychopaths right um but it sounds like you're saying the opposite that a yes. psychopath the psychopathy the disorder is is a negative behavioral driver the psychopathy is causing them to retreat from activities and yeah. uh the disorder in the case of sociopathy is a positive behavioral driver it's causing them to in fact do stuff yeah okay yeah so I, like i said i'd like to see some case studies yeah on definitively diagnosed psychopaths versus sociopaths and see if those case studies say yes this person who is a psychopath did a, B, and C, and this person who is a sociopath did X, Y, and Z. Right. So off the top of my head, I can give you at least the case study of Ted Bundy. So Ted Bundy was um, basically diagnosed as a psychopath. Um, he actually donated his brain to science after he was executed. Um, we will get into that uh, in a little bit, what they actually found on his um, dissection. He was diagnosed as, as a psychopath. Um, Ted Bundy, as you know, 
was one of the most manipulative and charismatic people ever to be on this earth. He used everything that he could to get his victims. And if there was ever a time that he was being looked at by the police, I mean, he he literally escaped the courthouse. Right. And ran to a different state and then killed more people in that other state. Right. Like, he was yeah, able to get out of those situations so easily. He, he talked his way out of the actual courtroom. Correct. Into an adjacent room to make a phone call. To make call a phone call. Where the, the window was unlocked. Correct. And he literally just hopped out hopped a window. Hopped out the window and just... And walked away. Was out. Correct. He is the epitome of a psychopath. And like it was it was a court officer. It was the, it was either it was either a police officer or it was a bailiff who he actually managed to convince and he's on you know, he's here standing trial for murder, for like a bunch of murders. And he actually convinced this person to let him go into this room by himself. Yep. yep. Like what kind of he was a Jedi, clearly. Well, a Sith, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, like, how do you do, like, you know, it's, it's, you wish that you could look at that brain and find out what kind of, what there was different about his brain that enabled him to just use his words like magic. Right. Like a Jedi mind trick. Right. That he's literally on trial for murder and he talks his way into an empty room by himself yeah. for long enough to literally go out the window. And then after he gets out of the window, he's got enough time to escape the scene. Correct. Yep. It's not even like they heard the window open and came running after him. He was gone. He was out. What kind of charisma exactly this guy was the ultimate bullshit he was he was the and ultimate how how did he do it he was the ultimate so that's literally that is like the case study of a psychopath he was so methodical in the way that he even got his victims i mean he would have you know a fake cast on at the beach and like have women help him load things into his car and he would get women that way um and, you know, he was a good looking guy. So to be honest with you, I probably I probably would have been one of Ted Bundy's victims. I'm not going to lie. I mean, now in 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 2020, I would not be one of Ted Bundy's victims. But if we were back in the 70s. Right. I probably like 99 percent would have been one of his yeah. victims. People just helped people back then. Yeah. Because they didn't understand how crazy the average And he was, was a good looking, <laughs> intelligent, young guy who's like, hey, I need some help. Can you help me here? Yeah. And there were no cell phones that you had no. to worry about. Like today, if you want to kidnap people, it's pretty difficult. Yes, <laughs> it is. And back then, you know, people hitchhiked all the time. Like nobody right. had a, this sense of fear. Right. And I, to I, I totally would have been one of those people. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that up from the 99%. 100%, I probably would have <laughs> yeah. been one of his victims. Yeah. Yeah. So he's your case study. <laughs> now, for sociopaths, I mean, you can find so many. Any, honestly, like a bunch of just random people who like burglarize houses. Like those could be considered sociopaths. If they're not doing it for like a legitimate reason, like sometimes people will, will go rob a store or whatever because they need money to feed their kids or like something like that. But there are also those who just do it for the thrill. Or they just do it because they want to terrorize somebody. Those are your, yeah, you know, your everyday sociopaths. And obviously, like we mentioned before, sociopaths are much more prevalent than psychopaths are. And... When I first learned about sociopathy and psychopathy um, in undergrad, um, my professor explained to us, and there's not really much research on this, so I can't, I can't find a lot about it, but there are actually three levels. There's sociopathy, which is the lowest level. There's psychopathy, which is the mid-level, and then there's primary psychopathy, which is the highest level. And in this sense... Um, 
Bundy would be considered a primary psychopath because he is incredibly intelligent. He was able to hold down um, bonded relationships before his execution. Um, same thing with John Wayne Gacy. He would be considered a primary psychopath. Um, Dennis Rader would be considered a primary psychopath. Then we have people like probably Jeffrey Dahmer, who would just be a regular psychopath. They're like mid-level. They're not like super intelligent. They're not super planned out, but they're also not like crazy impulsive. And then you have the sociopaths who are, like I said, your normal criminal, your everyday criminal. Again, I can't find a lot about the difference between a regular psychopath and primary or primary and secondary. So, you know, if you guys want to do more research on that, please do. But, um, that's how I was originally taught these levels. So yeah, psychopaths are very, they're like, their minds work very differently than the norm. Very differently. So sociopaths make up approximately 4% of the general population. And it is likely that approximately 1% to 3% of the general population it has psychopathy according to Hare, Newman, and Pitchford. However, we see this percentage grow exponentially in the prison population. Approximately 20 to 30% of those in prison have psychopathy. Really? So, yeah. That's an incredibly high number. Yes. So that's more like in line with what I was, with my original estimate. Correct. You know, I was assuming that we're talking about people who have been determined to, to, exhibit aberrant behavior and so yes. among people who have been convicted of crimes correct the prevalence of psychopathy you're saying yes not just the no. spectrum of of not aspd, ASPD. right psychopathy, psychopathy mm -hmm. they're 20 to 30 20 to 30 percent yeah that's incredibly high yes right yes it is it is who did that study so this is so hair hair is the guy who basically like created the checklist Okay. For psychopaths, he's the one who basically does the... Di he's the diagnostician. Okay. He's the one who created... Um, we're going to talk about his uh, his checklist. Um, and then Newman and Pitchford, who are also um, highly regarded psychologists. Okay. So how does this correlate to violent crime? Keel and Hoffman found that psychopaths are 20 to 25 times more likely than non-psychopaths to be in prison and four to eight times more likely to violently recidivate than their non-psychopath counterparts. Not surprising. Not surprising at all. Not surprising at all. So this is why we wanted to start with this disorder, because a lot of the criminals that we discuss on our podcast probably have ASPD, are quite possibly sociopaths or psychopaths. They're incredibly common when it comes to criminality. But again, when you see it in the general pop, there aren't that many. So, like Dan mentioned before, don't think that your ex-girlfriend is just some... Right. There are just jerks. Correct. There most certainly are. Now, there are important differences between the brain of a psychopath and that of a non-psychopath, according to neuroscience research. The University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Medicine and Public Health performed a study showing these differences through fMRI scans and DTIs, which are diffusion tensor images. They chose to perform this study on 40 prisoners 20 of who were diagnosed as psychopaths and 20 who were not. And the study showed that those who were diagnosed as psychopaths had reduced connections between the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is the front middle portion of your brain, and the amygdala. This is incredibly important to note because the prefrontal cortex is responsible for empathy and guilt, and the amygdala is responsible for emotions such as fear and anxiety. So again, it goes back to the fact that researchers say that psychopathy is created due to neurological conditions. Right. 
So they're seeing in people who are legitimately diagnosed as psychopaths having this disconnect right. in the areas of the brain that are responsible for the behaviors that you should have and the emotions that you should have as and, a normal person. Yeah, and specifically the link between the area which I would say initially conceptualizes negative events around you and the area which is prim primarily responsible for establishing a negative feedback loop such that the 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 frontal cortex is what says hey that guy is being hurt and the amygdala is what says that's a bad thing so in people where that connection is weak or absent they don't ever make that mental leap from that person is being harmed that's a bad thing it just stops at that person is being harmed and so the natural tendency of the human mind is going to take over which is well that's not something i see every day so that's interesting to me whether it necessarily induces a positive emotional response or not is irrelevant it's the fact that it doesn't induce a negative emotional response you're supposed to feel bad when people get hurt. Right. Um, and in fact, in the absence of that link, it's arguable that all people would be psychopaths. Because <laughs> if every day, if the average day for the average person is you wake up and everything's kind of cool, kind of okay, which I think it is, even if you feel like it's not because you're in college and your girlfriend's a nut, um most of your days are, are pretty good, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, unless you're in the Shyakot Valley right now and Taliban is, is knocking on your door, I mean, there are areas in the world where you could live and every day pretty much sucks. But for the average human being, your average day is pretty good. You wake up, you don't get shot, you don't get cut or burned, so that's pretty good. So for the average human being, having comfort is the norm mm -hmm. and so seeing negative things is the unique thing mm -hmm. and so for the average person when you see this is why everyone looks when they see a car accident right this is a bad thing right that car has been smashed that person has been hurt but we all look and that's absolutely, why we all have such an obsession with the macabre and and true crime absolutely 100 percent of us look when we see an accident mm -hmm. At some point, whether it's immediately or whether it's within 30 or 40 milliseconds or whether it even, maybe it takes a couple of seconds for you because that connection is kind of weak, hate to tell you, you might, might want to consult a, a professional. At some point, that connection is going to be made where your amygdala is going to say, this is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that sucks, man. I, I hope, you know, I hope that guy's okay. I hope, you know... His, his wife is okay, his kids are okay, whatever it may be. Right. Um, at some point, a normal person is going to make that connection. Mm -hmm. Because if not for that connection, all people would just stare at that mm -hmm. and, be, and, be, and be enamored by it of, oh, here's this thing. Here's this big, shiny thing. That's awesome. Even if it's, like I said, even if it's not a positive emotion, it's just a driver to something that's unique and something that's new and unusual. Mm -hmm. We all like new and unusual things. That's why Homo sapiens spread across the planet Earth right. instead of staying in East Africa. Right. Because they were like, well, things are good here. We got plenty of bananas and shit like that. But I'm going to get on this rickety-ass canoe and go across the Red Sea to a fucking desert. Why would you do that? Because those guys were probably a little bit of psychopaths. Maybe. And they were just like, shiny thing over there. I'm going to go anyway. Yeah. So thanks. Yeah. Maybe slightly psychopathic homo neanderthalus <laughs> for making that rickety ass canoe. But yeah, I mean, the, the point is after that giant diatribe, um, <laughs> that connection is super important between the frontal cortex yes. and the amygdala because it's Correct. the connection between bad thing equals bad. Correct. Instead of just thing. Right. And, and, and to that point too, it's, it's interesting because like, like we're talking about the neurological aspect to the psychopathy is 
what the environmental aspect is to the sociopathy. And you're saying that for normal average people, when we see something that we're not used to, like a car crash, our brains go, oh, that's bad. But for someone who has grown up in an environment where abuse is the norm or neglect is the norm, they are taught that these things are normal. Right. So then when they see something bad, they're, they don't have that feeling of that's bad because right. they're, they're conditioned to be more of that sociopath. Right. So, and I would, I would say that probably neurologically, if they're an average person who are born into a crap situation, neurologically that link is still going to be there and it's still going to be just as strong as it is in Sarah or I or any of you. But I guess the difference between a psychopath and and so let's say the difference between someone who's born as a psychopath and someone who is kind of developed environmentally into a psychopath, I guess we could say, is that for the for the former individual, the link is not present between the frontal cortex and the amygdala. And in the latter person, the link is present, but that amygdala has been generating that response for so long that it no longer causes a behavioral response. Right. Which is fear and anxiety about these negative things. Correct. You know, if you grow up hearing gunshots and, and watching people get shot... Your amygdala still fires and you still get scared and anxious, but you're so used to feeling scared and anxious that that's normal to you. Right. And that's the boring thing. And so that's the thing that's going to be a negative driver of behavior for you. And so you're going to have to do crazy stuff yeah. to generate to that response. a positive, to, to get that... Yeah. Um, that dopamine and that mm -hmm. adrenaline right that normally would come from an average person seeing a car crash right it's almost as if your amygdala is fatigued exactly 100 percent. it's just it's just like being a, a type 2 diabetic yes you, you know you've just you've just used you've up used all of your pancreas's ability to generate insulin yes Exactly. It's it's there. Your body is it's, telling it. It's type. Need... It's type one diabetes versus type two diabetes. Right. That's kind of what psychopathy, psychopathy versus, versus sociopathy, sociopathy is. is. Yeah. 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 That's actually that's a really good analogy. Right. I don't even think of it like that. That was good. <laughs> Michael Koenig's assistant professor of psychiatry at the university said, "Quote: Those two structures in the brain, which are believed to regulate emotion and social behavior." seem to not be communicating as they should. And Professor Joseph Newman, psychology professor at the university, stated, quote, the combination of structural and functional abnormalities provides compelling evidence that the dysfunction observed in this crucial social-emotional circuitry is a stable characteristic of our psychopathic offenders. But I think it is also important to note that researchers studied the brain of Ted Bundy, as I mentioned before, and found no discernible evidence that his brain function was any different than that of a non-psychopath. However, we must remember that Bundy's brain was studied after his death and was not examined under the same conditions as the prisoners in the University of Wisconsin study, whose brains were very much alive at the time of this research. And when was the when was his brain examined? What year? Bundy, Ted Bundy was executed in 1989. So shortly after that. So they examined the brain in 1989. The point is they didn't examine it in 2009. No. So that so the technology was trash back then. Oh well. So there's no way yeah. that they were going to be able to definitively identify the vast majority of aberrant function in a brain in 1989 or even 1999. Neurology was nowhere near what it is today, and especially imaging technology and understanding of neuroanatomy. So there may have been 
there may have been deviant, you know, structural deviances in Ted Bundy's brain that they just didn't see because they just couldn't. Yeah. So, um, but but again, also, I mean, dissecting a dead brain and not being able to watch it in a brain scan, like it's not going to light up. Obviously, there there's not going to be any any emotional response. Period, because that it's not connected to anything anymore. Um, right, those connections begin to break down pretty much, pretty much right away. Yeah, so it, it's gonna it's the experiments performed on his brain versus the experiments performed on the prisoners' brains are are completely different. So we we have to think about that, and yes, we have to think about the fact that you know the 1989, the 90s, whenever it was, is very different than it is now in research. Yeah, the best that they could do was literally, like, jam a steel probe into the gray matter and electrify it and see what happens. See if it did Whereas something. today, imaging is so, so, so much better that they can do fMRIs and, yes. and things like that right? Um, on these tissues and, and get a much more detailed picture of, of what's happening right? functionally. So we constantly see violent predators and serial killers being named as psychopaths and sociopaths, but does that mean all violent offenders are indeed? And does it mean that anyone who has antisocial personality disorder or traits of sociopathy or psychopathy will 100% become a violent criminal? In short, no. Some experts believe a lot of people with these traits and patterns may seek professions to feed their emotionless souls instead of wanting to murder people in cold blood. According to Dr. Kevin Dutton's 2012 book, The Wisdom of Psychopaths, What Saints, Spies, and Serial Killers Can Teach Us About Success, these professions include... Can you guess some of them? There are ten. Uh, mortician? No. Uh, okay, so the top ten professions diagnosable yeah people who for sure are Pro on the spectrum of antisocial personality disorder. correct yeah top 10 professions that these people would choose yep that they gra gravitate towards yep i'm gonna say state senator real estate agent uh motocross racer uh distillery worker professional stinky man and the guy that draws anatomy drawings <laughs> No. On all of those. You ready to hear the, ten, the top ten list? I'm ready to hear the real answers. Because okay. once again, this is a nonsense question. <laughs> CEO. It is estimated that between 3% and 21% of CEOs are probably psychopaths, according to a study by Bond University psychologist Nathan Brooks. Lawyer. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> Media professional. Sure, sure. Salesperson. Yeah, absolutely. Surgeon. Yeah, you got to be a little nuts to want to cut people open every day. Exactly. Journalist. But they're seeking that, that adventure out. Rush. Yeah. Yeah. So be a skydiving instructor instead. Police officer. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. I thought this one was really interesting. Member of the clergy. No comment. That's even less of a comment. Chef? No, BS. Nope, I'm calling BS on that one. Nathan Brooks. And civil servant. Yeah, you gotta be nuts to push paperwork all day. <laughs> no, it's true, though. Absolutely. So, do you want to know if you're a psychopath? Oh, I know. As antisocial personality disorder is diagnosed via the criteria listed in the DSM, psychopathy is diagnosed through Hare's Psychopathy Checklist Revised, or the PCLR. With this test, a diagnostician interviews a potential psychopath, and based on 20 criteria, including promiscuous sexual behavior and impulsivity, provides a score of 0 to 2 on each of the 20. Zero is item does not apply, one is item applies somewhat, and two is item definitely applies. 
The total score can range anywhere from 0 to 40, and anyone with a score of 30 or above is considered to be a psychopath. We have linked a Business Insider article with each of the 20 criteria listed, so you can self-assess. But we have to put in a disclaimer. You can't really assess yourself as a sociopath or psychopath. Only a real clinician can do that. And if you were indeed a true sociopath, you probably wouldn't even realize it. Right. And that was our first Psyche Saturday. Hashtag not psychiatric advice. No. I am not a psychiatrist Hashtag yet. consult a professional. Yes, please. Yay. Yay, we did it. That was our first Psyche Saturday. Let us know how it was, because this was new for us. This was a unique format. We tried to keep it sort of close to Blackbird, because we know that Blackbird rocks. Yeah. But we know that this demands a different, a little bit of a different handling. So let us know what you think. Let us know how you liked it, what what you think that maybe... I mean, if it's perfect, that's great. But if there are areas you feel like we could improve, like maybe telling our dog to not be such a punk, yeah, let sorry us know. Sorry about him. Yeah, yeah, let us know what you think. <laughs> a few things before we say our goodbyes. Um, as always, you can contact us at uh, blackbirdadvocacy at gmail.com. If there is something that you want to learn about, a psychiatric disorder a neurological disorder a cognitive disorder a developmental disorder let us know because we plan to cover like every i mean the dsm is a big book <laughs> yes, but it's a very big book we're gonna try to get through a lot of them we've already had so many suggestions so we're gonna try to at least get through for the time being the suggestions that have come in but again because there are just so many disorders of the mind let us know what you want to learn about let us know if there's something that you're a little confused about ask us a question that we can yeah, address in absolutely. in one of the future episodes please send send them our way you can also contact us uh on instagram at blackbird advocacy you can find us on our link tree l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash blackbird advocacy and big big news we are finally on amazon music that's amazon <laughs> Amazon Music and Audible have finally launched podcasts. Audible has not put us on yet. There's a bunch of podcasts that are still waiting to go on Audible, so we'll let you know when that happens. But Amazon Music finally launched as of like two days ago. We got our official notice today. We are on Amazon Music. And they are attempting now to become the biggest podcast platform so you can find us on there if you search Blackbird and Advocacy Podcast, or you can go to our link tree, and our link is linked there. Download the app and listen to Blackbird there. Follow us. I don't think you can give reviews on there yet. I didn't see a, a spot for that. No, I'm sure it's coming. It's Amazon. It's got to. Yeah. Right. Uh, but you can still review us on uh, Apple. So please do give us five stars. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow for our uh, regular episode. Bye. Good night.